Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up 2 Kings chapter 5. That is where we will be. Taking a look, it's kind of interesting because there in 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a perfect story of how God redeems. And um, oh, it's just such a blessing to take a look at. Second Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Wow, there's a lot sitting there in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1. Listen, as we come to this section, remember we're dealing with a time in the history of Israel where the nation is divided. Two parts. Northern kingdom, don't really care about the things of the Lord, or not for the most part. And so God sends some special prophets to the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, you have Elijah, and you have the one who comes immediately after him to confuse us, Elisha. Elisha is now God's prophet to the nation. Now listen, the important part about that is, God never leaves a people without a prophet. If his people are there, even if they're disobedient, the Lord brings a prophet. He brings his word. He he wants to see men turn. He wants to provide opportunity. The Bible says that he is long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish. So the Lord has his prophet, and his prophet is there to show the people and to speak to the people the things that God has laid on him. But we have an interesting story in chapter 5. We have the enemy of Israel, Syria. Syria had been in a long, drawn-out war with the nation of Israel, There had been peace under Ahab, but Ahab had died and his son took over. His son got hurt uh, in an accident up on the roof and ultimately ends up dying as a result of this accident he has. And because of the instability in the nation, Syria takes that opportunity to attack. Twice, Judah, the kingdom to the south, comes to Israel's aid and helps them defeat the the Syrians so that the Syrians are unable to to conquer the nation of Israel. Twice God's prophet is there to deliver the word, give direction on how the people would experience victory. But now in chapter 5, you got the guy, the head of the army of Syria. His name is Naaman. And he is a rich man, a wealthy man, a great man. Everybody in the country knows his name. He leads his people. He leads them with with strength and honor and glory. This is basically a pretty good guy in terms of what he's doing and, and how he lives his life. He's got the respect of his king. He's got the respect of his men. He's got money and power. He's got all that stuff, but he has a problem. He has a problem. He's a leper. He has Hansen's disease. Uh, leprosy, Hansen's disease is really a deadening of the nerves in your body. What, what, what happens is you can no longer feel. It begins mostly on your extremities, but eventually it'll cover your whole body. And the reason why they, they become so disfigured is because they can't tell when they hurt themselves. 
when they cut themselves, they don't notice that they've cut themselves, and that cut gets infected. And that, when that cut gets infected, they don't feel the, the pain or the extra hassle from that cut, so, so they continue to have more and more, greater and greater infections. Their body, in essence, rots from the outside, working its way in. Hansen's disease, that's what he's got. You know, it really doesn't matter how much money and power you have when you have a disease like leprosy. Everybody knows you have a disease. Everyone knows you have leprosy. The skin goes pale white, begins to die. It begins to, to crack and ooze and all kind of things. So you have this guy with all this power, all this respect, everything that he could ever want, but he's a leper. Listen, the reason I'm beating that drum is because in the book of Leviticus, we are given very clear and distinct directions on, on how a leper was to be treated in the nation of Israel. And throughout Scripture, leprosy becomes a type of sin. A type of sin. You and I, we, we see a leper, we recognize a leper, we think, ooh, we don't want to touch him, we don't want to get too close to him, we don't want to be around him. In fact, in those days when you were a leper, you would not go home, you could never again go into your house, never again touch your kids, never again hug your wife. Once you were declared to be a leper, you were outside the camp, living in a tent, and that's where you spent the rest of your life. There's no cure. But interestingly enough, in the book of Leviticus, I think around chapter 13, the Lord told the, the children of Israel, He said, I have something I want you to do in case a leper is healed. Now, um, but it didn't ever happen. Every priest going to school with the brothers in uh, the Levi's would learn how to do this ceremony. And they would never use it. Because leprosy was not ever cleansed. Study through the scriptures. You're going to find instances where God touched a man or gave him leprosy of his hand and then maybe would remove that. But he was never declared leprous by the, the nation. And then you fast forward to Jesus Christ. On one day... Jesus healed ten lepers at once. Now go into the temple, and there the priests are about their business. And all of a sudden, ten guys show up. One time, all lepers who have been cleansed, who need to go through the ceremony that God had laid out for the people to do. If you take a look at that ceremony in Leviticus, it is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ coming from heaven, dying, and setting us free from sin. The whole symbolism of the entire uh, um, deal that takes place all points to Christ. You take two birds. Where do birds live? In the heavens, right? You take two birds, you put them in a, in a clay pot. What does that symbolize? That which is heavenly, putting on, uh, becoming a, a clay pot. The, the Lord tells us that we have treasure in this earthen vessel. 
What's the treasure that we have? It's not you and I. The treasure that we have is, is the Spirit living within us, the Holy Spirit. What's the, what's the treasure in that earthen vessel? That which came from heaven being inside the earthen vessel. It speaks of the incarnation of Christ coming to earth, being the sacrifice to set us free. They never did it. Never. The history of Israel until Jesus showed up. And they did it more than once. You had ten show up on one day, but you had other times, a variety of times, where lepers would come to Jesus. One in specific, that he came to Jesus in need, and what did Jesus do? He touched him. First physical contact he had had from another human being who was not a leper was God touching him. Leprosy is a picture of sin. If you and I saw it, it would kind of freak us out. What's the point? That's how God sees you and I. That's what our sin looks like to him. It's repulsive. It's horrendous. That's how God sees it. That's how God sees it. It's why he uses that picture. And no matter how much fame or power, or no matter how many good things you have, according to the word of God, you got Naaman, the second most powerful guy in Syria. He's got everything he could ever ask for, but he's got a problem. He's dying. Leprosy is killing him. And he wants to be made clean. And God is going to use incredible circumstances to reach Naaman. Just like God wants to use incredible circumstances to reach you, or your loved ones, or your friends or family that don't know that Jesus Christ is the answer to the leprosy of sin that runs rampant in our lives. There's nothing we can do. It's something He has already done. Something He has already provided for us. So we see in the beginning, here in, in verse 1, first point I want you to see, He is a condemned man. No matter how much He's got. No matter how many things He's got, no matter how much money, no matter how much stuff, He's condemned. Leprosy will take Him. No cure, condemned. But then look at verse 2. It says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So remember I told you they're enemies. They go out and they do battle. And in this battle that they have in this fight, they snatch up a young girl. A young girl. Probably somewhere in her teen years. And she's made a slave. Now, I don't know too many people who have been made a slave in my lifetime, but I would think I'd have a bad attitude about being a slave. I don't know, it's just me. <clears throat> and I sure wouldn't care what was going on with the people I was working for, the people who had made me a slave. But what we see in, in, in verse 2 is not only was Naaman condemned, he was the enemy, and even as the enemy... Listen, even as the enemy, God gave him a witness. A witness. Somebody, somebody who would share with him. Even though he was an enemy. Listen, I, I, there's so many parallels. Just flip over to the book of Ephesians while you're, while you're here. Ephesians. 
beginning about verse 11, says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, Paul is saying in Ephesians that we are Naaman. Every one of us, before we come to Christ, we're Naaman. We're outside the covenant. We're outside the promise of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are not connected in any way with the things that God wants to do, the things He wants to to show us and move in our life. We were enemies with Him. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ... You who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He made both one. That means there's only one group now. Once upon a time there were two groups, Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus has made both one. No wall. The middle wall of separation is done away with. Anyone, whosoever, can call in the name of the Lord. Whosoever can be saved. But apart from Jesus Christ, we are His enemy. Jesus said, I did not come to the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. He goes on to tell us in John chapter 1, that the world is already condemned. We're already lepers apart from Him. We're already caught in sin. We're unable to save ourselves. You cannot cure yourself. You cannot live a good enough life. You cannot be a good enough person. You must, you must have a relationship with the God of the universe. You must hear the cry of Jesus when He says, Follow me. Come. Follow me. A call that he gives us to repentance. A call leading us to follow him. In Romans, from Ephesians, just turn to your left to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. For when we were still without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, that means you cannot save yourself. You cannot pray enough, do enough good deeds, be a nice enough person, do enough special things. You are without strength, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5. We are without strength. What can a dead man do to save himself? Nothing. He's already dead. Who does the work? Jesus Christ does the work. He does the work. Our part in that, if if you can call it a part, is simply to put faith in the promise that He gives us that that's what He's done. And He gives us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee that He has fulfilled that promise. In verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet perhaps for a good good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His love to us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we're Naaman. We're the leper. 
Sometimes we don't recognize our leprosy and we think we're pretty good and we're doing fine and, and all is well. But if we don't recognize our leprosy, the scripture tells us, then there's no hope for us. The hope for us is the hope like Naaman who says, I want to be cured. The, the, the hope that says, I want to like to put this, these sinful desires, this sin that's radiating in my life, I would like to put it away from me. That's the desire. That's the desire of Naaman. And it all starts. He's condemned. He's the enemy. But he hears a witness. That little girl. Look what it says in verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. This blows me away. We don't know nothing about this girl except what we read in pages of Scripture. What an awesome witness. What is it that God has called us to be? He tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, those of us who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, he says, wait until you have been endowed with power by the Holy Spirit. And what is that power for? What is the promise of the Holy Spirit to accomplish? That you can be my witnesses that you could be my witnesses that you that you will share the truth that you will share the truth of what God is doing what God wants to do in our life we share that truth that's what the Holy Spirit's for not to provide a show not to get us excited and make us feel good although those things occasionally occur in the power of the Holy Spirit what's he here for to make us a witness To make us like this little slave girl who would tell her master, there's a guy who might be able to help you. Look at the extreme that God goes to. That little girl, when her family perhaps is slaughtered by the armies of this guy she's living with, she, I'm sure, thought, Lord, what in the world are you doing? How could this possibly be your plan for my life? That, that I, my family would be destroyed and I'll spend the rest of my life in slavery. By the way, she don't ever go. She's there forever. An exile from her nation as a slave. But God brought her there to witness to Naaman. A man who's a Gentile, not a Jew who will have greater faith than every Jew in the northern kingdom. It's pretty incredible. And this story that we're reading, Jesus is going to use as an illustration. This exact story. Jesus is going to use as an illustration of the blindness of the nation of Israel to the truth. She is going to be his witness. She's a little, a little girl, but she's willing to be used by God. Look at verse 4. It says, And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. <laughs> I love that verse, because what that verse says to me is, Naaman don't put a lot of stock in what she's saying. Enough stock to go to the king and to say, Hey, I got a slave girl, and this is what she said. I just love that her witness is 
thought to be so small, so little, so insignificant. Even in the page of Scripture, you know, there's no big to-do made about it. But her example becomes an example all the way down throughout the ages of this little slave girl who was willing to be used by God. Oh, I doubt she had a theological degree. I'm pretty sure she didn't have all the answers and all the questions of all the problems on the page of Scripture. But she was willing. She was willing to allow God to use her. So the king of Syria said, Well, go. I will give you a letter to the king of Israel. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to do. And part of the history of that moment is if, if you were sent like an ambassador from another country, you'd have a letter of introduction, and in this letter the king would say what, you would, what he would like you to do for this person who's now coming and visiting your country. But keep in mind, these people are enemies. For crying out loud, they're raiding the border towns and taking little girls for, for slaves. The picture is so important that we see because sometimes I think we look at our life and we say, we think, oh, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm a good person. No, we're just like Naaman. We're just like the Syrians. Apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ in our life, that's who we are. <laughs> so the, the king writes him a letter. The king writes him a letter. It says, so he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, now be advised... When this letter comes to you, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now the king at this time is, is uh, Joram, or Jehoram. The, the Bible calls him Joram because there's another king with the same name in a northern kingdom, and it stops people from being confused. But it's just an alternate spelling of the name. Joram's the second son of of Ahab, and there he is reigning, and he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't serve God, doesn't care about God, doesn't think about godly things. All he knows is his enemy's commander-in-chief of the army that he's been fighting in battles the last few times is standing before him, and the Syrian king is saying, heal him. And the king of Israel is like, what in the world are you sending to me for? How am I supposed to do this? What, what can I possibly do? What can I possibly... He has no spiritual attitude in his entire body at all. He doesn't even understand that what he should do is call on Elisha. But God knows. God knows. Look what it says. It happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He said he's trying to start a war. He wants me to heal this guy. I can't heal this guy. Who can heal this guy? We can't heal him. You can't go to somebody else and have find the solution for the problems in our life. There's one place to go. There's one answer. Right here we see that he he's trying to save himself. He's trying to do the things that he needs to do. He's trying to accomplish all the things that he needs to accomplish. Scripture tells us in, uh, in verse 5, it says, The king of Syria said, Go now, I'll send a letter. He departed and took with him, listen, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Today's price, $140,000 in silver, 
1.6 million in gold. Take this cash, go talk to the king, get yourself healed. I don't know, just me, I'm not sure that's going to work out so well. The king doesn't know how to help him. But look at verse verse 8. So it was, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king. So here's what happens, guys. He comes in, he presents himself, he gives a letter to the king, the king reads the letter, he's a little bit freaked out, he says, excuse me, I need a minute. They take that guy and put him in some room somewhere else in the palace. At that moment, the king starts freaking out. What am I supposed to do? What am I going to do? We're going to have to go to war with Syria. This is horrible. I can't heal this guy. I can't even believe he would bring such a thing. He's got to be trying to... And so they're trying to make plans and decide war. And who knows how long the guy's there. He, the king tears his clothes. The tearing of your clothes as a king or a priest was to be done when you hear blasphemy, something utterly and completely horrible. So the king's tearing his clothes. He's freaking out. And Elisha, word gets to Elisha. And so Elisha sends word to the king. I like this. Elisha sends word. He don't go. He just sends a word. He just sends the information. Look. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. The prophet in Israel. The prophet is he who speaks for God. He speaks for God to the people. The guy's coming to be healed of God. He knows he's supposed to look for a prophet. He assumes the king in which the land where this prophet lives would know. Wow, he's got to know this guy lives here. You know, Elisha really hadn't done all that much yet. Well, he raised the dead. He parted the Jordan River. He had a oil fill up this, this lady's house so she could... She could have the money that she needed to do the things she needed to do. You know. Sent some bears. Yeah, sent some bears to chew up some guys that, that were not being very kind. Well, he, you know, he's run into the king, same king, who's about ready to do, to do battle with the Moabites. And he tells the king, hey, uh, I don't really care much for you. So if you were the only one here, I wouldn't help you. But Jehoshaphat is here, the king of Judah, and he's a godly man. So I'm going to help him, and you get a pass, because I'm helping him. And he told him how to win the battle. And it went just like he said. But now he doesn't know, oh, there's a man of God. Well, listen, the fifth thing that we see here is that Naaman is called by God. That's the only way anybody ever gets saved. God calls him. God calls him. It's the only way. We, not a one of us, were seeking him when he called. Our only ability to seek him is a response to his call. Otherwise, we'd never turn our head. God calls him. He's going to use Elisha to talk to, to Naaman. But God calls him. Listen, he's condemned. He's an enemy. He has a witness. He hears a witness. He tries to save himself. But that doesn't work. And then he is called by God. Elisha says, come here. 
Come here, look what happens. So Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, Naaman's not just there. He's carrying $1.6 million in gold, $140,000 in silver. He's not just trucking with that in his wallet. You guys know that, right? So he's also the commander of the army. So he's got an entourage. Big entourage. And he's an important guy where he comes from. So he comes to Elisha's house. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh will be restored to you. And you shall be clean. <coughs> Go he don't even come out of the house. The, listen, the, the guy is there, Naaman's there, beats on the door. Elisha says to Gehazi, his servant, Gehazi, go tell him to go take a bath in the Jordan River seven times and he'll be cured. Elisha don't even go out. Gehazi walks out, servant, and he says to him, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Man, Naaman is ticked. Look what it says in verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I thought to myself, he will surely come out to me. He's upset. He's upset about the simplicity of the message and what he thought was going to be required. But you see, when we come to the Lord, we don't come to the Lord all proud and full of ourselves. Do we? The Bible says God resists the proud. Shows grace to the humble. He's expecting I'm a good guy, I'm a right guy, so therefore this guy's going to come out and he's going to do his thing and I'm going to be cured. But that's not the way. The way is he's going to need to humble himself and listen to a message from a servant in order to be cleansed of his leprosy. And initially, he just don't like that. You ever seen that someone, when you talk to them about the fact that their Bible says there are none righteous? Not one? Met a guy in the jail one time. Wasn't in the jail, but he was at the jail. And I was there with a, a guy, uh, Don uh, MacArthur was, was with us that day. I was happening to be teaching a Bible study in the jail. And this fellow was outside, and Don walked over, and he starts talking to him about Jesus. And the guy says, I'll never forget this. The guy says, the guy says, well, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Don says, you are. How do you know you're going to heaven? I'm a good person. Heaven will be lucky to have me, and if heaven doesn't want me the way I am, then I don't want heaven either. Wow! I don't even know where to start. There's so many things wrong with that statement. I don't even know where to start. Listen, the Bible says there's none righteous. There's no one who does good. Listen, not one. Romans chapter 3. There's none that seek after God. It is the call of God. It is our submission to Him that ultimately brings that salvation. When we hear the call, we recognize, oh my, the Lord from heaven is calling to me. How should we respond? We bow our knee. We humble ourselves before God. We receive that grace that He bestows upon us. 
our life is radically transformed. Because at one time we were proud, and when we kneel, uh, I call that repentance. That's a change of direction. Radical change. In a life of this guy. When right now he's just mad. He didn't even come out and talk to me. I thought he would stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand. He's going to wave his hand over the place. That, By the way, that phrase, over the place, it means that the leprosy was in one specific spot. So maybe it was on his arm, maybe on his face, maybe on a, somewhere the leprosy was visible. Primarily, not like his whole body was falling apart. So he has a something, a play, arm, leg, foot, I don't know. But a place, and he thinks the guy's going to come out, call on the name of the Lord, wave his hands. Well, I think he's seen some of the folks on TV. Because sometimes that's, I mean, if you, if you don't know anything else, you think that that's how it must happen, right? Well, Jesus, he'd just look over and reach over and touch a casket. Oh, you guys remember that, don't you? He's coming into Jerusalem. There's a, a funeral procession coming out, a woman walking. Her son, her only son, is in that casket. I love that story. Jesus just walks over to the casket. When he's resurrected, risen from the dead, no billboards, no cameras, no huge crowds. Just Jesus doing what he does. What he calls us to do. Making a difference in people's lives. That's pretty incredible to to see he's he's upset. It says, he says in uh, in verse 12, Are not the Abana and the Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I could have took a bath at home. That's what he's saying. Why should I take a bath in the Jordan River? I could take a bath anywhere. The, the rivers there in Damascus still today are boasted to be the, the cleanest and the coolest waters in the whole area. He's like, I could have done. Have you ever seen the Jordan River? Anybody ever seen the Jordan River? The Jordan River looks like mud flowing. Am I lying? It's dirt. It is dirty water. It's dirty water. There, maybe there's a couple of places where it's clean. I, I didn't see too many of those. But what I saw, especially down in the desert where the baptisms took place, was dirty water. Dirty water. Nothing special. This guy's looking at the water thinking, I have a leprosy. I'm not climbing in the dirty water here. This is ridiculous. I could have done this anywhere. I could have done this at home. I can't believe that this is what's being required of me. This is stupid. I shouldn't. You can hear all that stuff out of him, can't you? Yeah, it probably is. It probably is. It probably is. What's this mean? He's resisting God's simple plan of salvation. Well, let me give you another example. The nation of Israel is in the wilderness, disobedient to God. God sends fiery serpents. And the fiery serpents are biting the children of Israel. And they're falling on the ground, writhing in pain. And Moses goes to the Lord, 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 what can I do for the people? 
And the Lord says, I want you to get a brass pole and affix a serpent to the brass pole. And you sit that brass pole up in the middle of the camp. And you tell the people, whoever looks at it will be saved. How many people did Moses run up to laying in the sand, screaming, oh, and in pain? How many people did Moses go up to and say, brother, just look at the pole and you're going to be okay? And the guy said, get away from me. What are you talking about? Look at the pole. I can look at a pole, look at a tree, look at a cactus. What, that's not going to make any difference. Give me a pain pill. Give me a shot. Give me something. How many people perished in the sand? How many people died right there? See, Jesus uses that story too. He says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. John 14, 6, Jesus said, there is no other way to the Father except through Him. No side route, no circuitous route, just one route. Jesus Christ. That's it. One way. Scripture says there is no other name by which man must be saved. One name. One way. One plan. And Naaman doesn't like it. I've met a lot of people who don't like it. Who think that way is too narrow. There should be other ways. There should be another way to do it. There should be something else that could be done. Surely God's not going to hold any of these things against me. He's not going to... I really have never done anything wrong. I've, I've been a pretty good person my whole life. They're always looking for a way to save self. 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was written. The primary part of the Humanist Manifesto that leaps out is this phrase. There is no God. We must save ourselves. I ask you a question. How are we doing so far? Uh, A cop in L.A. gets fired because he said that another sheriff or officer that he was working with did something he shouldn't have done to an inmate. Says, fine, fire me, I'll get back at you. That's how man saves himself. He killed, I don't know how many, four, five. I think that they think they got him now because they pulled the walls out of the cabin he was hiding in and the cabin fell down, caught on fire. They found charred remains with a wallet with his name in it. Whether or not that's him, I don't know. I guess time will tell. That's how we save ourselves. Well, at the end, what's left? Dead bodies all over the place. Who got saved? We have our ambassador in Benghazi, Libya, calling for help. That's how we save ourselves. We allow the the people there that take him to take him, rape him, and drag his body through town. An ambassador of the U.S. That's how we save ourselves. Doing a bang-up job. Man cannot save himself. Man needs God to reach down and save us. Naaman's upset, but look what happens. 
Verse 13, And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then if he tells you to wash and be clean? Man, he, this guy's got some good, good servants. And as a result of their faithfulness to him, we're going to see Naaman cured, listen, cured by simple, obedient faith. That's it. Obedient faith. Not intellectual assent. Yeah, I guess that could work. Obedient faith. He actually got in the water. He actually got in. Look what it says. The scripture tells us so. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. See, that's what happens. That's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. He makes us clean. Clean. No leprosy. He makes us clean. Look what happens. He returned to the man of God. He and all his, his aides and came and stood before him. And what's he do next? He becomes a witness. Oh, now he's a witness. He goes to Elisha. You know, gone is all the pride that you saw before. He says, indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. There's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Listen, verse 11, he says, Indeed, I thought to myself, he would surely come out to me. Now over here in verse, seven, uh, in verse 15, he says, Indeed, now I know there's no God except the God of Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. There's nobody, nobody like the God of Israel. You remember I told you, Jesus uses this story, right? Let's look at it for a minute. Luke chapter 4. <coughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 4. Let me paint the picture for you. Jesus just stood in the middle of his hometown in a synagogue. He read this scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He reads Isaiah 61. And he says to them, This messianic prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, who all throughout that history at that time, was God in the flesh coming to save his people. He says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am here. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But they began to say, isn't this Joseph's kid? So he said to him, so he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. When do you think they said it? He says, you're going to say this proverb to me. 
is appointed unto man. Wants to die. And then judgment. And there will be no question on that day. The judge, according to scripture, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You will surely say to me in that day, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. How come you didn't do any miracles for us? That's what they're saying. How come you didn't do the miracles you did in Capernaum? In Capernaum, you healed the sick. But here in Nazareth, all you did is proclaim who you were. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Listen, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There are a lot of widows in Israel. The widow at Zarephath is a Gentile. Because the people of Israel would not believe what God was telling them. So the Lord went out and touched the Gentiles. The example that he's saying here to the, to the people in Nazareth that are saying... One day, he says to him, one day you're going to say, why didn't you do the miracles here? And Jesus says, listen, there were a lot of widows in Israel. But Elijah went to the one who believed. If you will not believe the word of God, the Bible, you won't believe even if God would raise someone from the dead. That's Abraham's words. In the Gospel of Luke. If you won't believe the word. When Elijah went to that widow. That widow didn't have anything. Elijah asked that widow. Give me what little you got. And God will provide for you. And she's faced with a choice. Believe. Or don't believe. She believes. How do we know she believed? She gave him a cake. And God provided her need. Just like Elijah said. But look at the next verse. Verse 27. Many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed but Naaman the Syrian. There were lepers all over Israel. But the only one God cleansed was Naaman. Why? Why is he the only one? Because he did what God said. He did what God, he had obedient faith. It took the servants to convince him it was a good idea. But he did it. He did it. Jesus refers to that story out of 2 Kings chapter 5. So now, listen, he stands before him and he proclaims. He's a witness. There's only one God, and that's the God of Israel. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. He's trying to give Elisha money. Remember, $1.6,140,000 in silver. Elisha says, I don't want your money. No, you're not giving me nothing. Don't give me any money. Don't give me any money. He goes on and says, 
Naaman said then, If not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other gods but to the Lord. This guy doesn't know anything about the law. All he knows is now he believes in Almighty God. And what's, what's happened? His life is being transformed. What's changing? What do you mean? What's changing? I mean, he's, he's not going to offer sacrifice to any other gods. He only wants to offer sacrifice to the Lord God Almighty. So he asks him for two mule loads. I don't know how much a mule load of dirt is. But he takes him two mule loads of dirt home so he can make an altar on which to sacrifice. But listen to verse 18. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple... May the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Now, people get all crazy over this. I don't know why they get all crazy over this. They get crazy over, people got to get crazy over stuff. Why didn't Elijah tell him there's no possible way he should bow down in that temple? Listen, this is what he's talking about. His job was to take the king of Syria into this temple where the king of Syria is going to be worshiping. And part of the king of Syria's worship requires the king of Syria to bow. And when the king of Syria bows, his right-hand guy has got to be on the ground beside him so that he bows and doesn't stumble, and so he has somebody to push off of to get up. And what Naaman is saying, listen, that's part of my job. I'm going to have to go in there, but I'm not worshiping that God. I'm only worshiping the Lord God Almighty. I'm just there so he can push off of me. Will God forgive me for that? He's not in there worshiping, saying he's afraid to make a stand. That's not what he's doing. He's helping his king up off the floor while his king's worshiping. So, look what Elisha says to him. So he said to him, go in peace. And he departed from him a short distance. So he's leaving. Now while he's leaving, we have another example. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, Look, my master spared Naaman, the Syrian, who's a punk and an enemy of ours, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives. Now this is how selfish we can be. He's going to invoke the name of Almighty God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, so that he, I will, be greedy and go get what I can get. As the Lord lives... I will run after him and take something from him. That is exactly how selfish we are. In the midst of God working or God moving, we think, man, I want something out of this. I should get something from this. I should be, I should be able to, to receive this guy's got 1.6 million. He's not going to miss any of it. I want some of the gold. I'd like some of that silver. The whole city of Samaria, just to put it in perspective. The whole city of Samaria was bought with two talents of silver. The whole city of Samaria was bought with two talents. This guy's got ten. A lot of stuff he's got. So he's going to go. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. He said, is is everything okay? And he answered, all is well, but my master has sent me. Ooh, first lie. He's going to tell two of them. First lie, my master sent me. That's a lie. 
saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two chains of garments. That's a greedy guy. Give me half as much money as it costs for the city of Samaria. You don't find that to be greedy? I think that's a little greedy. I think that sounds greedy to me. So, and not only is it greedy, he's saying Elisha's asking for it. So he's making Elisha look like a, a, at least misusing his character and name. Well, look what happens. So Naaman said, please take two talents. Naaman's just dying to give these guys some money to bless them. So Naaman says, take two. Now he's getting as much as it costs for the city of Samaria. So he urged them and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried it for him. So Naaman gives it to two servants. They carry all this gold. They carried all the, or I'm sorry, all the silver back to him, two talents of silver. And when he came to the citadel, the city, he took them from their hand and stored them away in a house. So when they get close to where the school of prophets is, he runs over there and he, he says, okay, thanks guys, I got it from here. And he runs into his house and he goes and hides them in his house. So the men left. Now he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? Lie number two. And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. Man. All right. So Elisha said to him, didn't my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time now to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman will cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. So you have a tale of two guys. One guy looks pretty good on the outside, very religious man, serving Elisha. But his attitude is leprous. We just can't see it. The other guy's got leprosy on the outside. Uh, he knows he's in need of a Savior. So he comes, receives salvation, is cleansed, gets to know God. But the other guy, his leprosy's on the inside. Listen, the Lord tells us this story so we recognize, so we can see. That's how we look. Nobody knows the covetousness that's in our heart. They can't see you longing for what someone else has. They can't see it. What God says is we're all lepers and we need to come to Him in honesty and learn to be hungry for God and not hungry for stuff. Learn to be hungry for what He would give. Not to work for things that perish with the using, but for that which lasts. A life devoted to the Lord. In Second Kings... Chapter 5. Who knew? Amen? Well, just stand with me. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to see God, the salvation of a Gentile that you're going to use as an example in Luke chapter 4. 
to your own people who were disobedient to the word. And as such, they didn't see miracles. The people were disobedient to the word in the kingdom of Israel back in the day of Elisha. And so the miracles of this healing was done outside of the city. Oh God, I just pray that we would desire to have eyes to see the truth of of how you want, what you want, how we can turn and change our lives and know God, you are indeed the one, the answer, the thing that we need, the becoming one. That you are he who causes to be. And our lives are going to be giant empty spaces that we fill with a thousand other things until we recognize the call of God and bow before you in submission and feel that grace of God pour out into our life. Lord God, we pray that you would move in a mighty way tonight. God, our eyes would be turned towards you. Lord, reveal yourself in truth that we, like Naaman, can, re- can realize what it is to be redeemed. Men and women touched by the power of God. Our lives changed, never to be the same. Heading toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and no longer establishing ourselves on the crown at the throne. Lord, we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see, that your spirit would move in this place, and we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before, yeah, before we uh, close out in the word of worship, <clears throat> we're asking for people who will, are willing to write a letter to Saeed. He's our brother uh, from Boise who is in the prison in Iran. Uh, he's been sentenced to eight years. Maybe you know that. Um, we're going to mail these letters in a few days. Um, the letter will encourage Saeed because even if he doesn't get to read it, he'll hear about the flood of letters from all over the world. The guards will read all the letters, so be sure to, to share encouraging scripture and make no comments about the Iranian government. Iran has received a letter appealing a sentence, and in, and in less than two weeks, we need 300,000 signatures on a petition to present this at the United Nations. So if you'd be willing to uh, sign the petition, it's available on... Uh, Engage Reality's Facebook page or Calvary Chapel Buell's. You can uh, hook up to it on either of those sites. So we can send those letters to them, flood them with letters, and uh, sign that petition. Maybe we could be a part of getting a brother home. Okay? It's out there on the table. You guys can check it out um, when you take off. All I could see was a struggle 
Haunted by ghosts that lived in my past Bound up in shackles of all my failure Wondering how long is this gonna last Oh, you look at this prisoner and say to me, son, stop fighting a fight that's already been won. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains. Wipe away every stain I'm not who I used to be I am redeemed All my life I've been called worthy Name by voice of my shame and regret When I hear you whisper, child, lift up your head Now remember, oh God, you're not done with me yet I am redeemed you set me free Why shake off these heavy chains Wipe away every stain I'm not who I used to be Because I don't have to be The old man inside of me His days long dead and gone Because I got a new name, new life, I'm not the same Hope that will carry me home I am redeemed You set me free So I'll shake off these heavy chains Wipe away every stain I'm not who I used to be I am redeemed You set me free So I'll shake off these heavy chains Wipe away every stain I'm not who I used to be no, I'm not who I used to be. Jesus, I'm not who I used to be. I am redeemed. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemption in Jesus' name.
Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.